0: Hello everybody, I'm Kyle Downing.
1: I'm Abby Wilde, and welcome to season two of Pith and Moment.
0: Too pithy, too too momentous.
1: This season, Kyle and I are sitting on opposite sides of the table, literally and figuratively. Mostly literally. Today's episode of Pith and Moment, we're going to talk about bros before pros.
0: But first, a little bit of Shakespearean news. So, Abby, you had something specific that you wanted to talk about in the news today, since we have had a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah,
1: we've been away for a while. And, uh, by the way, hello. Hello,
0: it's good to talk to you again. It's
1: good to talk to you, too. So, I think the first thing that I want to talk about about is the is a bit of a bombshell. Um, it's been announced that Marlowe is officially being credited as a co-author for Henry 6 parts one, two and three.
0: Sure. so what exactly like, because we've talked about this a little bit already, what exactly does that mean that he's like I mean that he's being credited? on these plays.
1: Well, what it means in this instance, and uh, you have it in front of you, I'm not looking at the screen, um, Mm. but uh, it means in this instance that a particular Shakespeare authority, and when Kyle pulls it up, he'll tell you which one it is, because I don't have it written down because I'm a professional. A particular (laughs) Shakespeare authority has uh, taken a look at the text and compared it to all of the the text that we all agree is done by one author, and all of the text that we all agree is done by the other author, in this case Shakespeare and Marlowe, respectively, and come to the conclusion that there are enough um, signatures in terms of the rhythm of the speech, the vocabulary used, uh, and the rhetorical devices that are reflected—that that are reflected thereby—to reflect those two different authors. Okay,
0: so it's the Oxford University Press. It's the Oxford um,
1: University Press. Okay. Yeah,
0: so, and that's you know that's not nobody. That is a very significant source. And I guess what I really want to ask about this is how does this change the way we look at the three Henry the Sixth plays that are now being credited? Uh, with Christopher Marlowe as a co-author.
1: So my understanding is that the Henry VI plays were written, uh, were were amongst the earliest histories. Were they, is scholarship divided on whether they came first or Richard III did?
0: Um, I don't know.
1: I'm going to say that the scholarship at this table is divided on whether (laughs) Richard III or Henry VI came first. Um, I don't know how it changes the way in which these are performed, except that it does, to my mind, um, you know, in in some way it goes some way to explaining the the sort of refinement of Shakespeare's writing style as the histories go further in um, writing order. Um, by the time he gets to Richard II, he's gotten a lot more, I think, nuanced, uh, introspective, and human in his depiction of his characters. Whereas in mm. Henry Sixth, there's uh, I think much more of a much more of a broad strokes and kind of Marlovian feel to them, not that Marlowe is not a nuanced author, but that his characters tend to be bigger and bolder. Um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, the comparison that's often drawn between Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice and Marlowe's Jew of Malta.
0: Okay, so there's there's one other element uh, to this that I find interesting, that as long as you're talking about the differences between Marlowe and Shakespeare and their characters... Let's do. Um, there is... A conspiracy theory mm. that um, is present among some Shakespearean scholarly circles, mm. wherein Christopher Marlowe um, didn't die, but instead just began writing under a new pen name, William Shakespeare. Why, though? Uh, you, you know what? Some people believe what they're going to believe. I know, um, and
1: that's my that's my answer to that. Why, though? But
0: the, my question is, does this destroy that um, conspiracy, or does this support it?
1: I'm... You know, people are going to argue for both. Honestly, and I'm speaking as a firm Stratfordian. I believe that there was a man named Shakespeare who was a genius who wrote most of these plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that hearing this hearing this news actually, to my mind, bolsters the idea that Marlowe... I, I, I can't believe that Marlowe wrote all of the Shakespeare plays, but I'm totally willing to believe he had more of a hand in more of them than we've been willing to admit thus far. Okay. Um, because... The 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 playwrights at that time were known to be um, collaborative collaborators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Collaborators and rivals, which are anyone who has gone to high school knows, not mutually exclusive terms.
0: Or anybody that's seen something rotten.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Finally saw that pretty recently. um, I still
1: haven't seen it, and I'm worried they're going to take my Shakespeare card away from me.
0: Ooh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Shakespeare police are coming.
0: I actually literally physically just took. Abby Wilde's Shakespeare card away from her, and I'm holding on to this until you see something rotten. We will bring this up for future banter in a future podcast. Okay. Great. So the next uh, item of news that we wanted to talk about is four days ago, it was reported that somebody discovered an underground passage I believe in... Mm -hmm. Was it the Globe Theatre or was it...
1: The Curtain Theatre. The Curtain Um, Theatre. The Curtain Theatre, which uh, was, uh, I believe, an earlier... Gosh, it's been a while since I read my Bill Bryson's Life of Shakespeare and my Stephen Greenblatt uh, Will of the World. And I'm dropping those titles to let you all know I am well-read. I'm just ill-informed on this day. Um, The Curtain, (laughs) uh, I believe, was... uh, one of the theaters that Shakespeare and his company performed in prior to the globe. Uh, what I love about this piece of news. So this is a story that's been unfolding for a while. Uh, the curtain, the remnants of the curtain theater were discovered, uh, in the process of a, of, of the building of, uh, Condos and office buildings in London. Mm. They discovered the foundations of the Curtain Theaters. So they've been excavating for a while, and the newest piece of news is that they've discovered a secret passage under what would have been the stage, which means that there was a way for the actors to get from one side of the stage to the other without being seen by the audience. Now, for modern theater goers, this is old news. But what I love about this is that, like, it strikes me as like as this kind of wonderful, thrilling advance. This is a thing that could be done i suppose with backdrops although you can always see like the wind of someone passing rattling a backdrop you know Mm. someone's going um
0: well and you know what it means to me is that like previously you would have thought that the way um that playwrights could write without that technology as we'll call it (laughs) would be pretty limited right like Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to have somebody Um, ...make an exit from one side of the stage and then make an entrance on the other side of the stage in the next scene. But with the capability of going underground to the other side of the stage... ...there is a flexibility in the writing style that allows you to bring characters in when you want them. You know?
1: You know what else I think it lets you do? I think it lets you use smaller casts. Because uh, if you have an actor playing multiple roles and you see them exit one side... you see a character exit one side of the stage Mm -hmm. and a different character enter the left side of the stage, Um, depending on the skill of that actor, you might not immediately twig to the fact that it's the same actor. It's a little visual cue that, if not fully convincing you, you're looking at a different person, helps you suspend your disbelief so far as to believe that that is a different character in the story. Yes,
0: yes, Mm -hmm. because they enter from some... Yeah, and it would be... It would make sense to be like, "Oh, well, this is a different character because that character exited over there and would be coming back from there." It's you know? much
1: more obvious when an actor walks off stage and then walks on from yep. the same door wearing a different hat. And in
0: all honesty, they probably aren't fooling anybody, but it also does help with the what we call the suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. You know, like, "Oh, there's an indicator now." Uh, and a second indicator, in addition to the new costume, that this is a different character. So mm-hmm. this can help me understand what's going on within the play.
1: Different person coming from a different place going to talk about different things. There and we go. all from the building of a secret passage, which just goes to support my thesis in life. Secret passages make everything better.
0: Absolutely. And on that note.
1: Um, on to our topic. Let's
0: take a secret passage to our next topic.
1: I like what you did there.
0: Bros before prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your thesis statement?
1: I'd be glad to. So I have this little pet, um, not necessarily a theory, but an element of Shakespeare's storytelling that I always tweak to when it pops up, which is that Shakespeare regularly pits strong fraternal same-sex friendships against heterosexual romance couples. There's a compare and contrast between um, the romantic leads' friendships and their romance. Mm. And when I say fraternal, um, I'm using that to encompass both uh, male-on-male friendships and female-on-female friendships. Um, I don't know what the appropriate word be word would be for sisterly friendships. Is it sororial? Is it, listeners, please write in and tell me because I will live in suspense until you we do. We were
0: talking about this earlier. Like, is fraternity gender neutral in the sense of not like a fraternity house, but fraternity of a group of people? Sure. Um, Um, So, I mean, we could say... Sororal Sororal? instead of fraternal, that just sounds like weird. Cisternal,
1: I that cisternal like cisternal sounds like a type of injury. Like she sustained cisternal (laughs) injury. I just, (laughs) although, oh my gosh, I want to write a family drama called Fraternal Injuries or Fraternal Bleeding. It's going to be awesome, guys. Wait for it. Two thousand seventeen. Great.
0: Wow, you're not giving yourself a lot of time on that.
1: I don't. I have a lot of time on my hands. Actually, working quickly.
0: I like it. Um, Um, rows before.
1: so this uh dynamic pops up i think most obviously in two gentlemen of verona where it is the a storyline mm-hmm. the two gents of the title um proteus and valentine are best friends proteus is in love with julia bros, if you will bros indeed yeah. i will and i did <laughs> um proteus is uh in love with julia and valentine is uh on his way out of court, where he... out to court, rather, and when he reaches court, he falls in love with Sylvia. Best friends, in love with different people, Proteus shows up, visiting Valentine, and falls in love with Sylvia, too. And now he spends the rest of the play agonizing on whether or not he should go after Sylvia, who he loves, and lose his friendship, or stay in his friendship and lose this chance at romance. He forgets about Julia entirely. He resolves to think of her as dead. Poor um, Julia. Frickin' Julia, man. <laughs> Julia cannot catch a break.
0: Mm. Until the end when, you know, we won't even talk about the end right now because...
1: there's It's a problematic play <laughs> on really many is. levels. Um, oh. And I love
0: it because it's Me just too.
1: so gross.
0: But we've talked before about how the ending of this play is like my favorite problem to solve in Shakespeare, because it is just so difficult to make it work yeah. uh, feasibly and and still like make sense. And you have you to know?
1: make a real decision on mm-hmm. whether you're going to try to make it okay at the end, or whether you're going sure. to let it totally be not okay and yeah. let that be your point.
0: So, in the interest of things being not okay, mm-hmm. um, Proteus making this decision throughout the whole play, like. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about how he's sort of struggling with it. it yeah. Weirdly, he doesn't struggle with it for as long as one might think. He has two monologues, like even as one heat and another heat expels, where he mm-hmm. just sort of goes through the idea like, oh my gosh, what is this feeling in me? Do I need to control it? And then he has, in the next scene where you see him, a much longer, similar monologue where he's trying to, rather than figuring out whether he should... Pursue Sylvia, trying to justify it to himself to make himself not the bad guy.
1: Yeah, it's like, almost like he's already decided this is the thing he wants to do mm-hmm. more than he wants to do the other thing, so he has to talk himself into a place where it's it's reasonable and yes. right. Um, I'm going to paraphrase, but one of the justifications he uses is that uh, if 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 he if he stays true to Valentine, he loses Sylvia mm. and. Sylvia is his other self. So if he is true to Valentine, he is false to himself and he cannot be false to himself. Therefore, the right thing to do is follow Sylvia. Um, well, in
0: the interest of discussing the fraternal um, relationship um, in juxtaposition, I guess, with yeah. the romantic sure. relationship, is what does this say about the relationship between Proteus and Valentine? I mean, does it does it weaken where it comes from if if Proteus is willing to just drop Sylvia so or drop him for Sylvia so easily, or does it say something about the strength of his attraction to Sylvia and that romantic relationship? What I'm trying to say actually or ask as I talk through this is which is Shakespeare trying to highlight more with the other the romantic relationship between Proteus and Sylvia or or the romantic desire, not the romantic relationship, um, or. ...the fraternal relationship between Proteus and Valentine... ...which is the highlighted element in the play... ...in comparison to the other.
1: Well, I think to look at what Shakespeare's trying to do... ...you have to look at the status quo... ...which is established at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, the resolution, whether or not you feel particularly resolved about it, is that uh, Proteus tries to force himself on Sylvia in the woods... ...and Valentine comes and interrupts it, saves Sylvia... Proteus apologizes, and Valentine forgives him. Their friendship is re-established.
0: Oh, and Valentine decks Proteus. He does. Yeah. He, he
1: does get, He punches him in the face, and then they're good. Which, uh, <laughs> it's, it's refreshing to see how much has not changed <laughs> in the past 400 years. Um, punches him in the face, Proteus apologizes, Valentine forgives, they're good. Um, and then Valentine says something interesting. He says, all of the love I had in Sylvia, I now uh, give to you. And it's up to your interpretation, really, whether that means that all of the love he has for Sylvia is the same as the love he has for Proteus, or rather he gives up his claim on Sylvia and is giving her to Proteus, because Sylvia and Julia have no lines after this. Hmm. We don't know exactly. Um, the status well, quo- Doesn't
0: Julia speak after... Um- like, after the whole Sylvia exchange happens, isn't that when Julia does her fake
1: faint? You know what? You are totally right. I misspoke. I misremembered. Uh, Julia has been masquerading as a boy because effective women in Shakespeare wear pants, as I've discussed <laughs> on multiple occasions. Um, it's one of my other favorite tropes. So, yes, Julia does uh, speak at this time. She reveals herself to have been Julia this whole time, and Proteus, uh, and, and Proteus basically pulls kind of a Demetrius at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream and that he says, oh, I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Now I see in you all of the things that I love and want and yay, everything's okay again. And so I think, I, I think the thesis that Shakespeare is making in this play is that uh, romance and friendship can exist side by side as long as they stay out of each other's way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily that one has to trump the other. Mm-hmm. It's that um, there there is a delicate balance between the two of them, and in, in order for them to coexist, there has to be an active attention paid to the relationship between the relationships. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: And you know, I think it also depends on whether you see Proteus as a protagonist or an antagonist. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I would argue protagonist because he has so so much more soliloquy. Sure. But that's yeah. the same as saying is Richard III a protagonist or an antagonist? He's the title character. He's the character we hear from the most. He also antagonizes everybody. You know, it's interesting now that you say that. Like, Valentine doesn't. Soliloquy. In my recollection, Valentine soliloquized once, but regardless, Proteus is the key soliloquizer of the piece. Um, if Proteus is a protagonist, <laughs> then the ha, ha, then the lesson that Proteus th- th- then then it's, Prote- it's the lessons that Proteus learns that we should assume we are to take away.
0: Yo, what? so check it out. You're right and I was wrong.
1: Valentine's soliloquizes little once.
0: Um, yeah, so uh, the Duke actually is talking to Valentine and then the Duke exits. And then Valentine, Valentine has this soliloquy and then Proteus and Lodz come in. Yes! So, point Abby.
1: Can I have my Shakespeare card back now?
0: Yes. Here's your Shakespeare card. Wait, <laughs> no. <gasps> still haven't seen something rotten. Damn it! I'm putting it in my back pocket. God! This is not the monologue I do, by the way. This is a different monologue than the one. That I do.
1: There are multiple monologues yeah. in Two
0: Gentlemen of Verona. There are plenty, and I'm sure casting directors are sick of hearing them.
1: Two gents, many monologues. <laughs> um, the
0: new title <laughs> of the next production we direct.
1: The new viral YouTube sensation that's <laughs> sweeping nobody whatsoever. Two gents, many monologues.
0: Okay, so to keep us protean...
1: To keep us protean.
0: I want to drive us to the next um, relationship, the next bromance...
1: In- I, I do too. I just want to see if I can finish the point okay, I was then trying I'm to make this out. Good. So anyway, as I was saying, if Proteus is a protagonist, we have to assume the lessons that he learns are the lessons we're meant to take away. Mm-hmm. Um, or we don't have to, but for the sake of my argument, I will. Proteus goes after romance and it nearly kills his friendship and he chooses his friendship and goes with his second choice romance. If, on the other hand, Proteus is not the main protagonist we're meant to sympathize with, if he is, in fact, an antagonist or an ensemble-agonist, he... Um, it's a word now. Uh, what does that even mean? It means that he's just a cog in a dramatic machine. Kind. Okay, gotcha. If Proteus is a cog, um, then, in that case, he's he's a servant of a larger message. And that larger message seems to be what we came to before, that friendship and romance... Can coexist; they just can't coincide. Sure. So then, what does
0: that tell us about um, our next pair, Romeo and Mercutio, or Romeo and Benvolio? Mm. Um, because it, it's it a romantic... seems like they don't. The literally the romance doesn't coincide with the friendship. No, it's in a... that case, they rip on him a little bit for being in love. But that's even more over Rosaline, Romeo's ex girlfriend, than it is over Juliet.
1: It is. Um, although I would point to Mercutio's assholeish lines, lines right after the ball scene when mm. Romeo's hiding in the orchard or right before the scene that everybody knows.
0: Humor's madman, passion, lover, appear thou in the likeness of a sigh.
1: I uh, it... You know, before Juliet comes along, Mercutio is the star of their bromantic three-way. Mm. And after Juliet comes along, Mercutio loses, I think, a lot of his... Agency and reason for being in the dramatic world of this play, and and dies shortly after.
0: Sure, and it's interesting. I've never really thought about it this way before, but it's interesting how the so the relationship between Romeo and Juliet does sort of affect the relationship between Romeo and Mercutio because it, it's pretty clear um, most of the time in the beginning that through their wordplay battles, especially in the The um, being but heavy, I will bear the light, Mm -hmm. that scene with uh, the three of them, Mm -hmm. Romeo, Mercutio, and Benvolio. Mm -hmm. Mercutio seems to always be on top of his game in the wordplay area, in Mm -hmm. the the back and forth, um, keeping score, battle, whatever, of their their jesting. Mm -hmm. And he just seems to own Romeo every single time until, after Romeo and Juliet have that balcony scene... It seems like something about love makes him wittier, which seems to happen in Shakespeare a lot. As we talk about, um, like, Barun and Love's Labor's Lost Mm -hmm. has that monologue where he suddenly discovers, like, he's witty because he's in love. Mm -hmm. It seems to happen to Romeo, um, which when the next time that he and Mercutio are actually, like, interacting, he tends to be the one that gets the upper hand. And I... Will actually look up the scene so I could pull um, pull an exact place in the play mm-hmm. for it. Um,
1: it's interesting that you frame it that way because it suddenly makes me think of the Mercutio Romeo dynamic uh, pre Juliet as almost as a bit of a as a bit of an abusive relationship. Um, <laughs> and then you know Juliet makes Romeo feel like, wait a minute, I am valid. I do have things to say. I am important. Screw you, Mercutio.
0: Well, look and. I hate to use the term abusive relationship, and I know what you meant by it. Right, you don't want to
1: throw it around.
0: Right, and it's not that I feel like you're throwing it around, but also, like, abuse, verbal abuse is just kind of present in bromances. You know, as, as a guy with guy friends myself, like it's there there's just an element of guys rip on each other and if you don't rip on each other you don't like each other like it's just you if you can't give your close guy friends a hard time then who can you give a hard time and certainly i have guy friends that i get my jabs in and rip on more than um you know and and, and, and on more on the winning side and there are certainly guy friends i have i can think of two right now (laughs) that are always like seem to have the upper hand on me totally in like the battle of wits and the ripping
1: on. Do you have uh guy friends with whom you're more likely to rip on and other guy friends who you know if you go to a certain level that'll be past a line? Um
0: boy it, I guess it depends like if I'm close to somebody, I'm not afraid to to go past a line unless it's like a really sensitive subject. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, which is interesting because I don't think, tying it back to Romeo and Juliet, that Mercutio realizes what a sensitive subject this love is. And there is a delicate balance of, look, you rip on somebody until it goes too far. But sometimes ripping on your guy friends helps pull them out of a place where you know they shouldn't be. Got it. Like, if if like I'm sulking over a breakup... For example, and my buddy John is, like, ripping on me, like, oh, you're being such a baby right now. Quit, yada, yada, yada. And she's she's not even that great for you. And, and something, like, just making fun of me over, like, stupid things. Like, if I'm going home by myself or mm-hmm. whatever. This is all a hypothetical scenario. But if I'm, like, going home by myself and sulking, and he's like, dude, you're being such a dork right now. Then I'm more likely to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I am. So I guess what I'm really saying is that sometimes, like, if you're close enough, there really isn't a too far. Because the ripping on between bros, mm-hmm. let's say, is, you know, a weird um, sort of testosterone-y hyper competition at some times. And sometimes it's actually just something that's used to pull your friends out of a rut.
1: You're saying you know? that Mercutio's rhetoric is neither intended by him nor largely experienced by Romeo as um, as, as abuse, for lack of a better term. Exactly.
0: And it's certainly, like, when he says he jests at scars that never felt a wound, mm-hmm. I don't believe that he's saying, you know...
1: That asshole doesn't know what he's talking about.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it's sulking. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, like, more of, like, I don't think he understands where I am right now. Or I don't think he understands where I'm coming from. Totally. Uh, or, you know, he wouldn't have said it like this. And I, like I said, I don't think it's that he's hurt. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just like his way of like being like, well, that ripping on me that he, he just did, that's kind of like, it kind of doesn't track.
1: I love that line because I also feel like it's kind of a revelation. I, I, I always find it, I, I, I often have the experience of, of m- making a new connection or meeting a new friend, shedding light on friendships that I've had before. And so, what I love about that line is it can be played so many different ways. Mm -hmm. I've usually seen it played as sulking, as he has no idea what he's talking about. But what I kind of love is it could be, oh my God, he has no idea what he's talking about. Because pre-Juliet, Mercutio is not only the star of their relationship, but he's kind of like you would, you would, if you didn't know the play was called Romeo and Juliet, you might think he was the star of the show. Mm -hmm. He's the like most charismatic, interesting, fun to watch. Character and he's got kind of a kind of a Benedict swagger. Going sure, out. yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so for Romeo to kind of realize that Mercutio has a size and that size is not as big as the world mm-hmm. is kind of a cool development. Um,
0: you know, I so I've pulled up um, the two different scenes of Romeo and Juliet, and I would actually like to do something that we don't usually do. Um, and see if we can read these scenes together and see what the difference is between who's winning and who's losing. And granted, it's certainly up to the, the, an element is certainly, and certainly an element of that is up to the director and how the production is directed, but also there, there are some basic elements in the text that really imply who Mm -hmm. is winning and who is losing in this Hyper masculine ripping on each other word battle. Totally. Um, so I'm going to pull up the first scene right now, and maybe we can come to the same side of the table for just this part of the podcast. I, mean, and I
1: guess. It's just.
0: To, to go off topic a little bit, it's actually really nice to be able to be across from you and see your face while we're talking to each other about these subjects.
1: I've got to say, this convers- I mean, I love our conversations all the time, but this <laughs> feels a lot more active and it does, like, yeah. easy to bounce off of than when we're not making eye contact.
0: Weird. Cool. So um, Benvolio's in the scene, so if any of his lines come up, we'll just skip them. But this is the first scene I'm talking about, the the Queen Mab scene, where Romeo and Mercutio are first battling wits.
1: Mm -hmm. Who would you like to read? I'll read Romeo. All right, let's do it.
0: Give me a torch. I am not for this ambling. Being but heavy, I will bear the light.
1: Nay, gentle Romeo, we must have you dance.
0: Not I, believe me. You have dancing shoes with nimble soles. I have a soul of lead, so stakes me to the ground I cannot move.
1: You are a lover. Borrow Cupid's wings and soar with them above a common bound.
0: I am too sore and pierced with his shaft to soar with his light feathers, and so bound I cannot bound a pitch above dull woe. Under love's heavy burden do I sink.
1: And to sink in it should you burden love. Too great oppression for a tender thing. Is love a tender thing?
0: It is too rough. Too rude, too boisterous, and it pricks like thorn.
1: If love be rough with you, be rough with love. Prick love for pricking, and you beat love down. Give me a case to put my visage in, a visor for a visor. What care I, what curious eye, doth quote deformities? Here are the beetle-brows, shall blush for me.
0: A torch for me? Let wanton's light of heart tickle the senseless rushes with their heels, for I am proverbed with a grand sire phrase. I'll be a candle-holder and look on. The game was ne'er so fair. And I am done.
1: Tut, duns the mouse, the constable's own word. If thou art done, we'll draw thee from the mire of this sir reverence, love, wherein thou stick'st up to the ears. Come, we burn daylight, ho! That,
0: nay, that's not so.
1: I mean, sir, in delay, we waste our lights in vain like lamps by day. Take our good meaning, for our judgment sits five times in that air, once in our five wits.
0: And we mean well in going to this mask, but tis no wit to go.
1: Why, may one ask. I dreamed a dream tonight. And so did I.
0: Well, what was yours?
1: That dreamers often lie in
0: bed asleep while they do dream things true.
1: We can cut this together. Yes,
0: so um, the Queen Mab speech then happens, where basically the the burn at the end, as we see, is peace, peace, Mercutio, peace. Thou talk'st of nothing.
1: True, I talk of dreams, which Boom. are the children of an idle brain.
0: Yes, and that's where basically, like. Mercutio has been sort of more clever and more witty this whole time. Mm -hmm. But this is where we see him really like own Romeo, where he just goes on this long, long tirade and you're like, You're not talking about anything. And Mercutio is like, True? Just like you. Talking about dreams. Exactly.
1: Just like you, which is gorgeous.
0: um, So then we sort of see how Mercutio definitely just sort of. I mean, in my view, destroys Romeo in this scene.
1: You know, I don't know if I agree. I mean, I think that I think that it's a great directorial cho- choice to have Romeo sort of struggling to keep up with the barbs because I think that Romeo very much wants to be as like witty and bantery as Mercutio is, but as I can see, he sticks in some sick puns, man. uh, His puns are so lame,
0: though. Being but heavy, I will bear the light. Soar and and
1: sore and sore and bound and bound. I mean, come on.
0: I I think they're good, but I think the way Mercutio reacts to them kind of... I don't know. To me, it kind of shows that Mercutio is even more clever, you know?
1: I think it shows that Mercutio... It, it might show Mercutio is even more clever. What it certainly shows is that Mercutio isn't bothered.
0: Exactly. Um, yes. Which, I mean, and if you're tracking wins and losses, like, that's part of the game. Whether, I mean, even if, Merc- if Romeo has the best burn in the world mm-hmm. and Mercutio and Bonvolio go, um, okay, then really it's not the best mm-hmm. burn, you know? It's like, it's like a, a gymnastics competition. Like, somebody could do, like, a perfect crazy-ass vault and if the judges don't like it, then it wasn't perfect. Totally.
1: Um, totally. I mean, it's I've, all
0: based on the observers.
1: There's an element of this which is in the eye of the objective auditor, which is, does the mm-hmm. audience, is the audience on Mercutio's side thinking Romeo is being silly and overdramatic? Or sure. are they on Romeo's side thinking that this should be taken extremely seriously? Sure.
0: And then going towards later in the play, it's not taken extremely seriously um, when or M- Romeo's feelings aren't taken completely seriously when Mercutio comes out and has that whole humorous madman, passion lover speech, appear thou in the likeness of a side, just straight up mocking him for what like what a pansy he's being for being in love. So we jump you know? to that
1: scene and read a little bit? I
0: think we can skip that one. All right, let's um, do it But on. I'm going to s- jump to this scene after that um, where Mercutio and uh, Benvolio are on the street uh, waiting for Romeo, and then Romeo comes by. Um, so he says, uh, Good morrow to you both. What counterfeit did I give you? Oh, uh, hold on. Sorry. So, um, next what I want to do is skip to the scene where, um, the first scene after um, the balcony scene, where mm-hmm. Romeo and Mercutio have another battle of wits, oh, so right. to speak. So, um, basically, Mercutio and Benvolio are on a street, waiting for Romeo, and Uh, Mercutio starts off by saying,
1: Signor Romeo, bonjour. There's a French salutation to your French slop. You gave us the counterfeit fairly last night.
0: Good morrow to you both. What counterfeit did I give you?
1: The slip, sir. The slip. Can you not conceive?
0: Uh, Pardon, good Mercutio. My business was great, and in such a case as mine, a man may strain courtesy.
1: That's as much as to say such a case as yours constrains a man to bow in the hands.
0: Uh, Meaning to curtsy.
1: Thou hast most kindly hit it.
0: A most courteous exposition.
1: Nay, I am the very pink of courtesy. A
0: pink for flower. Right. <laughs> Why then is my pump well flowered? Well
1: said. Follow me this just now till thou hast worn out thy pump, that when the single sole of it is worn, the jest may remain after the wearing sole singular.
0: O oh, single-souled jest, solely singular for the singleness.
1: Come between us, good Benvolio, my wits faint.
0: Switch and spurs, switch and spurs, or I'll cry a
1: match. Yea, if thy wits run the wild goose chase, I have done, for thou hast more of the wild goose in one of thy wits than I am sure I have in my whole five. Was I with you there for the goose? Thou
0: wast never with me for anything when thou wast not there for the goose. I
1: will bite thee by the ear for that jest.
0: Nay, good goose, bite not.
1: Thy wit is a very bitter-sweeting. It is a most sharp sauce. And
0: is it not well served into a sweet goose?
1: Oh, here's a wit of chevril that stretches from an inch narrow to an L broad.
0: I stretch it out for that word broad, which added to the goose,
1: proves thee far and wide a broad goose. <laughs> Why is not this better now than groaning for love? Now thou art sociable. Now art thou Romeo. Now art thou what thou art, by art as well as by nature. For this driveling love is like a great natural that runs lolling up and down to hide his bauble in a hole.
0: And as we see, I think, taking a minute away from the text, it is maybe it's not so much that Romeo had sweeter burns, but mm-hmm. we can see just He's from up to his, par. he he is up to par, and Mercutio is reacting to them with lines like "My wits faint," yeah, and uh, "Now art thou sociable? Now art thou Romeo?" and um, "Well said, follow me this jest now till thou hast worn out my thy pump." Yeah, like it's just so much more interesting how Mercutio reacts to these burns. And so maybe, like, maybe it's a confidence thing. Maybe early in the play, if Romeo is saying his burns with, like, l- like you know, a little hesitancy of being but heavy, I will bear the light. And in this, if he's, oh, single sole, jest, solely singular for the singleness. What? Then th- th- there's an element of, you know, the confidence gives that extra oomph to it.
1: I mean, I think... I think what, what, what's happened dramatically is in the first scene, Romeo is falling behind on the wit, and he's sad because he doesn't have love. In this scene, he's just gotten love. He's fallen in love with Juliet, she's fallen in love with him, and he's so filled with happiness that it allows him to ga- engage more thoroughly in, yeah, his, yeah. in his bromance.
0: So we are going to go back to our opposite sides of the table now so we can look across from each other. Oh, this oh, is so much better. So much better. <sighs> but... I think tying this all back into our actual thesis, it is interesting to see how the romance, the romantic relationship does affect the friendship in some way. Like when Romeo has this love to build off of Mm -hmm. or this love that gives him confidence or this love that gives him happiness or whatever it is, all of a sudden Mercutio is not the dominant bro anymore or whatever we would want to call it. Um, he, like, Romeo all of a sudden seems to have the upper hand in their ripping on each other word battles.
1: So what's fascinating here is I came into this discussion of Romeo and Juliet with a preconceived notion that I'm sure I'm carrying from various productions I've seen that have made a strong directorial choice. And, and my preconceived notion was that what happens in Romeo and Juliet is that, uh, Romeo and Mercutio are friends, Romeo falls in love with Juliet, Mercutio feels abandoned by Romeo, they have an argument, and then Mercutio dies. Um, Clearly, I'm bringing that in from somewhere else because we have just been searching the text for what I'm trying to remember and have not found it, Um, which is to say that in this instance, Shakespeare's uh, uh, bros versus hoes argument seems to be that that at first the, the romance makes Romeo a more whole person, makes him a better friend. His best friend dies because of it, and that's a dramatic action that makes a strong statement. Yeah, it
0: really is. Yeah, I didn't even think about that as like commentary. You know, mm-hmm. and maybe it's not like literally commentary, but it certainly says something. Um, so I guess it, even more than in the we in Two Gents, we discussed how um, there has to be a delicate uh, attention paid to both the fraternal. Romance and the romantic relationship in order for both to coexist. Maybe in Romeo and Juliet, we learn that um, the, the um, addition of a romantic relationship affects a friendship in a certain way, and then certainly maybe causes side effects that it didn't intend.
1: Maybe. I mean... Is that what you think the thesis, if, if there is a thesis in this play about um, about fraternal friendships versus uh, heterosexual romances, what do you think that thesis is?
0: Um, I mean, I guess it's pretty much just saying, or what we have said before, um, that there has to be a delicate attention paid to how each relationship affects the other in order for them to coexist successfully. Mm -hmm. Um, Even just thinking back to my personal experiences, I had a guy friend in college who lived with me and like all my best friends and once he met this girl like he started spending like all his time with her Mm -hmm. Um, and like we almost never saw him. We used to joke that he was married Mm -hmm. Um, and that certainly like him being around affected the dynamic of all of our friendships. You know, not necessarily in a negative way, but um, it was interesting to see how, whenever one of us was in a relationship, how th- it was interesting to see how that affected um, our bonding time, sure. you know, or our guy time. Sure. Yeah, because I mean, listen, when you're when you're single, like two single guys, like you hang around each other a lot more because there there is some sort of, I mean. There's an element of camaraderie mm-hmm. that that everybody needs in life. And when you're single, you get it from your bros. And when you're in a relationship, like, you get your poker night once a week while you're taking totally. care of your family.
1: And, you know, it's true for ladies, too. I mean, like... Sure, yeah. When I'm in a relationship, I'm not going to see my lady friends unless I make a definite point to block, out, um, to block out part of my schedule for our equivalent of poker night, which... Not that poker night is a man-only activity, but our equivalent seems to be drinking wine and watching the West Wing. Uh, and, you know, I can Same do bit. that. I can do that all the time if I'm not seeing somebody. Um, speaking of ladies, you know, we've we've written down a few more examples of uh, this dynamic when it affects men. But I want to make sure that we get time in to talk about it when it affects women. And Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, should we go comedy or tragedy first?
0: Comedy.
1: Comedy. We're going to start with As You Like It, which has, I think, maybe the strongest female friendship in uh, Shakespeare's canon. yeah. uh, Between Rosalind and Celia. Uh, Rosalind falls in love at first sight with Orlando, but unfortunately for her, right after that happens, her uncle, who is the new duke who usurped... Rosalind's father, the old Duke, decides that he's threatened by Rosalind's presence in court and banishes her. Rosalind goes away into the forest, but her cousin Celia comes with her because Celia loves her and thinks that her father's a jackass. They go off into the forest. Rosalind is dressed in the requisite pants because effective women wear pants. And while they're there, they bump into Orlando. Rosalind and Orlando pursue a very strange dating style, ultimately ending in their matrimony. Uh, and Celia assists in that, but we get several scenes, I think, of Celia both fucking Rosalind up and kind of taking the piss out of her sure, at the yeah. same time. Um, particularly uh, in the Celia Rosalind letter scene, which, Kyle, if you'd be so good as to find it, I think we should read a little bit. About Already on it. it. All right, here we go.
0: Not literally on it, I'm on the project of looking it up. I know you are. There we go.
1: Kyle, have you found the scene?
0: I have found the scene.
1: Who would you like to read?
0: Um, Oh, I would love to read Celia.
1: Awesome. You read my mind.
0: I did. That's why I picked Celia. So basically, can you give us a little uh, context for this scene?
1: I certainly can. So Orlando, for separate reasons, all known to himself, has also run off to the forest away from his kith and kin. And because he is desperately in love with Rosalind, he has walked through the woods writing truly atrocious poetry to his love, pinning it up on various tree trunks and branches and on the ground and on boulders and in streams and just, I assume, in a generally obnoxious manner. Um, And Rosalind and Celia have both found some of these poems, which is their first intimation, not only that Orlando might be around, or not even—it's not even about Orlando. It's their first intimation that somebody is a secret admirer of Rosalind. Now, shall we start with Celia reading the poem, or shall we start afterwards?
0: Let's uh, let's start after the poem. So basically, Celia reads a poem.
1: She reads a poem she has found, and let me tell you, it is not very good. <laughs> and here is Rosalind's response to this not very good poem. Oh, most gentle pulpiter, what tedious homily of love have you wearied your parishioners withal, and never cried, Have patience, good people! How now? Back, friends! Shepherd, go off a little! Go with him, Syrah. And off go
0: Touchstone and Corin. Didst thou hear these verses? Oh, yes,
1: I heard them all, and more too, for some of them had in them more feet than the verses would bear. That's
0: no matter. The feet might bear the verses.
1: Ay, but the feet were lame, and could not bear themselves without the verse, and therefore stood, lamely, in the verse.
0: But didst thou hear without wondering how thy name should be hanged and carved upon these
1: trees? I was seven of the nine days out of the wonder before you came, for look here what I found on a palm tree. <laughs> I was never so berimed since Pythagoras' time that I was an Irish rat, which I can hardly remember. T'row you who hath done this? Is it a man?
0: And a chain that you once wore about his neck. Change you color?
1: I prithee who?
0: Oh, lord, lord! It is a hard matter for friends to meet, but mountains may be removed with earthquakes and so encounter. No,
1: but who is it?
0: Is it possible?
1: Nay, I prithee now, with most petitionary vehemence, tell me who it is. Oh,
0: wonderful, wonderful, and most wonderful, wonderful, and yet again wonderful, and after that... Out of
1: all hooping. Good my complexion! Dost thou think, though I am caparisoned like a man, I have a doublet and hose in my disposition? One inch of delay more is a south sea of discovery. I prithee, tell me who it is quickly, and speak apace. I would thou couldst stammer that thou mightst pour this concealed man out of thy mouth as wine comes out of a narrow-mouthed bottle, either too much at once, or none at all. I prithee, take the cork out of thy mouth, that I may drink thy tidings. So you
0: may put a man in your belly.
1: Is he of God's making? What manner of man is his head worth a hat or his chin worth a beard? Nay, he hath but
0: a little beard. And then, basically, what happens next is Jaquies comes in and sort of hijacks the conversation.
1: Freaking Jaquies, man. I know,
0: right? Um, so, basically, what have we learned from reading this scene out loud with the dynamic of um, femance and romance juxtaposition in mind?
1: Um, You know, what I love about this scene is that Celia... Is so enjoying seeing Orlando's effect on Rosalind, mm-hmm. and enjoying the effect she gets to have on Rosalind as a part of this. Like she gets to give Rosalind like the news that will both make her the happiest she's ever been and the most uncomfortable she's ever been. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell, Celia is not reproaching her for it. Sure. Um. In any way, she's really. Like, she's just enjoying this event in their lives and enjoying being a part of it. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't really, like, if there's anything we learn from this play, they both get married. So, like, nothing really bad happens to either of them.
1: No. Now, there is one other scene that I want to take a look at, and obviously we can make cuts in editing to account for how much reading that we're doing. Uh, There is a scene between uh, Celia and Rosalind Rosalind, as in her boy persona, has an arrangement with Orlando where, she, where Rosalind, pretending to be this boy, will pretend to be Rosalind so Orlando can practice wooing Rosalind. They have an appointment and Orlando doesn't show up and Rosalind gets noticeably upset. Never talk to me. I will weep.
0: Do, I pray thee, but yet have the grace to consider that tears do not become a man.
1: But have I not cause to weep? I-
0: as good causes one would desire, therefore weep. His very hair is of the dissembling color. Something browner than Judas's Mary, his kisses are Judas's own children.
1: Faith, his hair is of a good color. An
0: excellent color. Your chestnut was ever the only color.
1: And his kissing is as full of sanctity as the touch of holy bread.
0: He hath brought a pair of cast lips of Diana. A nun of Winter's sisterhood kisses, not more religiously, the very ice of chastity is in them.
1: But why did he swear he would come this morning and comes not? Nay,
0: certainly there is no truth in him.
1: Do you think so?
0: Yes. I think he is not a pick-purse nor a horse-stealer, but for his verity in love, I do think him as concave as a covered goblet or a worm-eaten nut.
1: Not true in love.
0: Yes, when he is in, but I think he is not in.
1: You have heard him swear downright, he was! Was
0: it's not is. Besides, the oath of a lover is no stronger than the word of a tapster.
1: So, okay, so here's what I love about this scene. If in the previous scene that we read we get to see Celia just enjoying, enjoying having Rosalind under a pin and watching her writhe and torture under the multitudinous feelings that come along with love... In this one, she is taking such good care of her friend. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you could make a directorial or an actor choice that the reason that she's just yes-mamming at the beginning of this scene is because she just doesn't have enough energy to care about uh, about Rosalind's pain, but I think it's a much truer and much stronger choice that she knows that this is a time where what she can do most helpfully is support her friend. Sure. Uh, And the comedy comes from the writing and not from the actor and that she switches so quickly from, yeah, he's a great guy. No, fuck him. I hate him. He's awful. Um, And then she shifts pretty seamlessly into telling Rosalind exactly what she thinks of this guy. Mm -hmm. She's worried about this guy. She doesn't think he's that great. And she wants Rosalind to know that he's not a perfect man. Do you think that this scene, um, because it is so hard for us to be objective, I think, about... It's hard, at least for me, to be objective about uh, uh, the difference in dynamics. Do you think that this scene describes um, a, a less combative or more combative dynamic than we've seen in some of the previous scenes?
0: Um, boy, it's interesting you use that word combative um, because it implies some sort of like interference almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it to be less. Combative? Mm-hmm. Um, like, the relationship, especially, the the romance of it, is definitely less... Ha, has less of an adverse effect on the friendship. Totally. Or, or less of an effect, period, on the friendship, I guess, really. Um, it seems like, you know, while guys... the guys tend to, to rip on each other a little hardcore, the girls tend to tease each other, but they're also just there to, to talk to about it. You know, like, girls talk feelings more than guys do. So, like, when guys talk feelings, the guy friends, you know, rip on them and, and call them ladies, but when girls need to talk feelings, girls are there for each other to talk feelings in a more open and, and less judgmental way, and I don't know what that is about male culture versus female culture, but that's... Well,
1: that's in a whole nother podcast, and it ain't about Shakespeare. That's right. Um, it's a, you raise a very good point, that women are socialized to be much more um, comfortable talking about feelings, but less confrontational. And mm, men are yeah. socialized to be much more confrontational, but less comfortable talking about feelings. Yep. Uh, what's interesting about that is if uh, we go back to Two Gents for a moment, in the scene where Proteus meets Sylvia, and Sylvia leaves, and Valentine turns to him immediately and says, isn't she great? Um, Proteus, When Proteus is struck by love, he doesn't, he doesn't shut Valentine down. Valentine is shutting Proteus down in the early scenes where Proteus is in love with Julia and Valentine not yeah, yeah. in love with anybody. When Valentine's in love with Sylvia and Proteus is suddenly struck by Sylvia, Proteus' responses are, yeah, yes, she is. She's pretty great.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting how, like, once Valentine has feelings, it becomes, like, something like, okay, like... It's okay for us to talk about this now, now that we both have these feelings, you know? (laughs) Yeah, there is. It's this weird, like, just sort of understood thing between them. Men Um, with
1: feelings, anonymous.
0: Yeah, so I guess, what have we learned overall from comparing these romantic relationships with these fraternal or sororal relationships?
1: Well, you know, my, uh... My thesis was that Shakespeare regularly pits strong fraternal same-sex friendships against heterosexual romance couples and only one survives, but that really isn't true, we found. Mm -hmm. We found that um, in two out of our three example plays, the same-sex relationships uh, survive, either miraculously or quite organically, the Mm -hmm. end of the play and the romantic coupling. The third being Romeo and Juliet where quite literally the friendship doesn't survive because one of them yeah. dies. Interesting. But before the death the friendship is really great.
0: Yes. So I think I think then what we've learned again saying or what we've said before it's just that they're like for for the guys it seems like there has to be a really once again delicate attention paid to how the romantic relationship affects the male friendship mm-hmm. whereas With the female relationship, it it seems as though the romantic relationship only brings them closer together, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I find that interesting. Great. So let's dive into the next segment then, uh, which is the rhetorical device of the day. And quite simply, the rhetorical device today is just punning, right?
1: Totally. Shakespeare is known for his punning. We had a long conversation about this before we started recording, but what's interesting is that neither of us thought for examples of this rhetorical device, and neither of us thought of any of the lines in the three scenes we've just read, or four scenes we've just read, that are chock full of puns. Yeah. Um, it's Shakespeare loves his dad jokes. He loves <laughs> his words that sound like other words. Sure. Um, Kyle, what scene do you have pulled up right now? We can probably flip through it and quickly find uh, one or two puns up there. But...
0: Well, I actually still have the Romeo and Juliet scene pulled up with, um, the, you know, the soul of lead, the being, but heavy, I will bear the light, all that stuff. Um, so let's first, I guess, sort of talk about how pun is quite simply a play on words, right? Right. But when we think of punning, we, we think of it with a pretty simple idea in our heads, right? Right. A pun is a play on words. Mm -hmm. And while that's true, there's a lot more intricacy to the different types of puns than we pay attention to. And I want to talk a little bit about each, like, a couple different types of puns and how using these different plays on words can affect rhetoric.
1: Absolutely. Um, If a pun is a play on words that sound like other words, the variety of pun that Shakespeare uses the most frequently is called um which I'm going to have to practice saying five times fast. <laughs> Antanaclasis is when he uses two words that either are the same or sound exactly the same. Um, so, for instance, uh, when he speaks of... Uh, How about,
0: he, I have, so I have open right now, if, if you don't mind me interjecting, the Gregory Sampson scene... From the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, which is a very famous example of puns. Absolutely, let's do it. So basically we're going to read, again, continuing a reading theme of today, Mm -hmm. uh, a small section of the beginning of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, So Samson starts by saying, Gregory, on my word, will not carry coals.
1: No, for then we should be colliers.
0: I mean, and we be in collar, we'll draw.
1: I, while you live, draw your neck out of the collar. So here we have a really simple example of Mm antinaclysis with collar, C-H-O-L-E-R, and collar, C-O-L-L-A-R. Samson is saying, if I'm angry, I'm going to draw my sword. Mm -hmm. And Gregory is saying, yeah, while you live, you shouldn't be under the yoke of any man. It's a simple pun. Um, you can make a directorial choice, if you wish, that Gregory is literally misunderstanding Samson, but I don't think that's quite true.
0: It seems more like a play on words type thing, and we, you know, they they play with word order
1: mm-hmm.
0: later in the scene, when uh, Samson says, I strike quickly being moved, and Gregory says, but thou art not quickly moved to strike. Um, which is sort of, I mean, I guess it wouldn't be considered antinaclysis, but it's a very different type of pun I in think, which they use the order of words and, and switch them around in order to sort of still play on what the other person said in a very see, listen and response type way, but I see still get it's exactly a dig what in. you're saying. Yeah.
1: Although I've gotta say, I think that I think that it does qualify as antinaclesis with moved and moved. Um, I strike quickly being moved moved, yes. moved defined here as being like emotionally touched. Mm-hmm. I but thou art not quickly moved to strike you could make the argument that moved there literally means physical motion.
0: Sure. And, you know, the great thing about Shakespeare is that either of those could work as perfectly valid directorial choices. <laughs> and I think it's brilliant that there is a flexibility for us to interpret what kind of pun Shakespeare is using sometimes.
1: Absolutely. So that's antinaclusis. The other type of pun that we want to make sure we talk about is paranomasia. Kyle, do you want to define paranomasia?
0: Yeah, a little bit.
1: All
0: right. Yeah, so... um Paranomasia is a type of pun in which Shakespeare or any other author uses similar-sounding words rather than direct homonyms to sort of make a play on on them. And uh, an example of that that we have found in um, Henry the Fourth, Part One, is a line by Falstaff in which he says,
1: "Were it not here apparent that thou art heir apparent."
0: Heir and there being the similar-sounding words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just another interesting way of making a joke out of the sounds in words.
1: And in fact, we had so much trouble finding another, another example of Paranomasia that we were thinking of turning it into an audience challenge. Uh, another example in Shakespeare, that is. But we just found one in the course of our reading when Rosalind says, I would if I could cry hem and have him. Mm. Hem and him. Our paranomasiatic terms, perhaps?
0: Sure, yeah. Let's let's create as many new words as we can before the day's over.
1: Let's do it. I mean, I feel like that was. That was how uh, Shakespeare.
0: Paranomasiatic.
1: This is how Shakespeare led his life. How many new words can I create? There we go. Speaking of which, that segues nicely into how we want to make sure we differentiate between a pun, where a character knowingly misuses or uh, substitutes a word, Mm -hmm. and malapropisms,
0: in which a character. Does not understand the way the word should be properly used and makes an accidental mistake.
1: Mm-hmm. In which an author makes a paranomasiatic pun, but the <laughs> character makes a mistake.
0: Is oblivious to it. Isn't that poetic in an interesting way? Like, because I mean, the author is literally making a pun, but mm-hmm. the character themselves is not making a pun interesting
1: and what's but intre- what, what else i want to point out about this is when we were discussing this kyle told me something i don't know which i gotta say i hate it when someone tells me something i mm. don't know because i labor under the delusion, that's not true I you already- love learning that's fair that's fair and accurate kyle told me something i don't know which is that uh malapropisms used to be called dogberryisms after uh constable dogberry much ado about nothing whose lines are full of these misuses the term changed after um sheridan's the rivals during the restoration in which the character mrs malaprop became popular so it's actually this rare instance of a word that we had because of shakespeare being supplanted by a word from a later more popular playwright which mm-hmm. i kind of like um oh, i i i love that because don't get me wrong i love shakespeare but i also love Anything that anything that humanizes and takes away some of the godlike reverence.
0: Mm, sure. So that's puns for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess let's move on to our game.
1: Uh, which, what are we calling our game today, Kyle?
0: Um, w- I knew him, Horatio, Ooh. was the title that we came up with. Basically, so usually I just sort of create some sort of trivia type thing for Abby or whoever uh, is on the podcast. To sort of just, like, guess the answers to. And then that's fun. But today, since we are on opposite sides of the table, <laughs> we also decided we were going to be on opposite sides of a competition with each other. Yes. Um, and so continuing with that theme, we have each picked five lines from Shakespeare. Um, and what is going to happen is we are going to read the lines, and the person across the table from us will have to guess who said the line who they spoke that line to, and who that line was spoken about. And for the purposes of this game, they are all singular people. There is no like, speaks this to the crowd, or they are talking about the people in the corner in the next room. Um, There is one person saying a line to one person and about one other person. So, Abby, would you like to start?
1: I would love to start, Kyle. All right, Kyle, your first challenge Oh, she is rich in beauty, only poor that when she dies, with beauty dies her store.
0: Oh, boy. Okay, so it's a rhyming couplet, um, which me- which leads me to um, Midsummer's Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, and um, Twelfth Night uses rhyming a lot, and since there's a lot more talking about women in Romeo and Juliet than Twelfth Night, I'm going to guess that Okay, so this is a rhyming couplet, and um, I'm going to guess that it was said, she's rich in beauty. You know, I'm going to guess that this was said by Proteus to Valentine about Julia.
1: No, it is said by Romeo to Benvolio about Rosaline. Damn. Yeah.
0: Okay, well... Missed Opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my first one is kind of a gimme. Um, it's, Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright.
1: That would be Romeo to... It's Romeo about Juliet. Is it to Benvolio?
0: Is that your guess?
1: Oh, no. Oh, oh curse you and your three-part answers. I um, know, right? Isn't it great? Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It's Romeo to a servant about Juliet.
0: That's right. Oh. Yeah. Serving man is his official name.
1: I feel like servant should be should be sufficient for you. <laughs> all right.
0: Oh, boy. It doesn't feel good to be on the opposite side of this game.
1: <laughs> the table has literally turned.
0: <laughs> Continuing today's theme of a table.
1: It's all about the table. All right. All right. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Shall I, says she, that have so oft encountered him with scorn, write to him that I love him? Could you repeat it? Shall I, says she, that have so oft encountered him with scorn, write to him that I love him?
0: Um. So this... Is this said by uh, Phoebe to Rosalind about Silvius?
1: No, it Damn is it. said by Claudio to Leonardo about Beatrice, whilst Benedict is overhearing.
0: Oh, okay. Ooh, another, thing, oh, another oh, element, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so my next one is her only fault, and that is fault enough, is that she is intolerable cursed.
1: This is Hortensio to Petruchio about Kate.
0: That is absolutely correct. You are up by 6.
1: hmm Up by 6. Yeah, because Do I there's... get points when you don't guess mine?
0: No, you get points for each element that you get right.
1: Got it. Mm-hmm. I like this better and better. All right. In Belmont is a lady richly left, and she is fair and fairer than that word of wondrous virtues.
0: In Belmont. In so Belmont. that's a hint. That Big hint. I'm no idea. Really? No, no. Um, can you re- can you repeat the line?
1: Sure. In Belmont is a lady richly left, and she is fair, and fairer than that word of wondrous virtues.
0: I'm gonna just take a wild stab in the dark. This is um, said by Longaville to rune about one of the princesses i i don't even know
1: this is said by bassanio to antonio about oh Porsche. we just
0: talked earlier about how i don't really know um merchant of venice all that well and i should know it better you
1: handed me a weakness
0: mm, i did You've put it right there on the weaknesses. table all right here's mine and this one made me chuckle a little bit um he is very well favored and speaks very shrewishly. One would think that his mother's milk mm. were scarce out of him.
1: That is Malvolio to Olivia. Re Viola dressed as Cesario. Ah, ha, ha. Let me yeah. tell you about the time I played Viola in the Lacognata Flintridge Shakespeare Festival in mm, 2000.
0: Tell us about it every <laughs> week. <laughs> Alright, so you've already taken this game. Um, I can't win at this point, but let's continue just for the fun of it.
1: Yes, please, because I'm really proud of my clues. Alright, the next one. What stars do spangle heaven with such beauty as those two eyes become that heavenly face?
0: Oh, wow. That's very Romeo, actually. I mean, I know it's not Romeo because he says more specifically... Um, about... uh, I know his text. Sure. Um, can you repeat it again, please? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Here it goes. What stars do spangle heaven with such beauty as those two eyes become that heavenly face?
0: Um, boy. I wish I could pull up my list of romantic men from my Shakespearean text database thing a while ago. I gotta tell you,
1: that wouldn't help you.
0: Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Boy, I mean, in the interest of just taking a guess and trying to get it over with, um, I am going to say Helena to Diana about Bertram.
1: What a great guess. It is Petruchio to Kate about Mm -hmm. Vincentio.
0: Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm,
1: Which is why I love it.
0: Okay, cool. All right, hit me. All right. She speaks poniards, and every word stabs. If her breath were as terrible as her terminations, there were no living thing near her.
1: It's Benedict about Beatrice. To Don Pedro?
0: You got it.
1: Yes! All right.
0: All right, I, I almost can't stand the humiliation at this point. No,
1: but, but let's, let's, let's do the last one. You know, in for a penny, in for a pound. All right, here's my last clue. Are mm-hmm. you ready? I am. All right, listen carefully. A knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats... A base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave. A lily-livered, action-taking, horse-son, glass-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue. One trunk-inheriting slave. One that wouldst be a bod in way of good service and art nothing but the composition of a knave, beggar, coward, pander, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch.
0: So we know this... More um, colloquially, as Shakespeare's longest insult, mm-hmm. um, and I have no idea who it's about, but I'm it, just based on the nature of it. I'm going to guess that it's by uh, Ford to the maid of the tavern about Falstaff.
1: It's from King Lear. It is Kent oh. to Oswald about Oswald.
0: Oh, <laughs> okay. Thou, right? I should have guessed that it was the. The person Mm -hmm. being spoken to and the person being talked about were the same person. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, my last one, after getting zero points, (laughs) is... For the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities.
1: It's a history. And Kyle knows that I am weak on my histories.
0: Well, that's just not true.
1: I'm... I'm... Comparatively weak on my histories? <laughs> Can I hear it again, please? Yes.
0: For the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities.
1: It is Hal to Henry IV about Hotspur. Yes! Yes! Wow! Oh. Abby
0: got a perfect score, and it just proves that how awesome Abby is at these Shakespeare trivia games.
1: Kyle, I have missed this deeply. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, um, our next segment uh, is, I know we say that all of our segments are our favorites, but I just really love this segment. It's called Tyrant Producer, and the premise is, uh, if a producer came to you and handed you a $3 billion or an unlimited budget to produce any play that you wanted, or, uh, but he had one specific constraint, how would you justify that constraint? So my question to you, Kyle. Pirate producer comes to you, says you can produce any Shakespeare history play you want. Ooh, yes. But the king must be played by a child actor of the age of 14 or younger.
0: Ooh, interesting. So obviously uh, the first thing that I'm drawn to is, I I shouldn't say obviously, but the first thing that I'm drawn to is um, Richard II. Um, you know, just because of what we know about Richard II in general, I also, um, have been thinking, I, I immediately thought of Henry VI Part Three. Interesting! Why? Uh, well, because it's mentioned the, in the play that, um, basically Henry VI had a caretaker, right, who basically lost the kingdom mm-hmm. uh, on his behalf while he was too young to be the king. Sure. Um, and... There was, there's probably some chronology in there that I would have to sort of like cut out or snip out to justify it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting to think that the beginning scene when he is found in his throne room, mm-hmm. um, there is, like he's basically cornered and forced to give up the kingdom mm. to, I can't remember who it is. Is it the French? Um, don't remember. Weak on my history. Yeah, so uh, it, would, it would make some sense that, uh, you know, a youth... ...that's cornered would be so easily willing to give up his kingdom. And it's also interesting to think that... uh, So the character Clifford in that play has this long tirade... ...where he's like, what are you going to tell your son... ...the rightful heir to this kingdom... ...when he asks why he's not king... ...because you gave it up because you were a coward. They basically tell him they're going to kill him... ...if he doesn't give them the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it almost is easier to justify if the the scared person is a scared little boy. Yeah. Like a child actor at the age of 14 we said? Yeah. Yeah. Um and you know I'm going through other uh, history plays. Ah. Uh, obviously Henry IV is out mm-hmm. because he has That's, a son. Yeah. Um Henry V would be pretty difficult to do. I think so. Um and he, so I mean I'm I'm with Henry VI. Um I don't I mean, I'm sure, I don't know much about King John, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure it would be difficult to make that work because I know King John is generally played as one of the older kings.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I think I'm going to go with, after all of that, I'm going to go with Richard II. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first gut instinct was Richard II, too, partly because um, what I love about that play is that it deals with the definition of kingship, and it starts with one character being called King, and then Mm. being called Richard, and another character starts being called Henry, and then becomes called King. Sure. So you could fulfill that requirement either way by having one or both of those characters be played by boys. Um, What I love about having Richard be played by a boy is that Richard's trajectory in that play is um, about, like... He's a spoiled brat. He's a spoiled yeah. brat who suddenly becomes aware of like his place in the world and his and and, and has to think about his identity as a human and and as a uh, mortal and as a man in ways that a king doesn't and mm-hmm. like it's 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 not hard to see the parallel between like kids who are wired Coming to see age, themselves as yeah. the center of the world to yep. going through puberty. Yep. Um, although you know and.
0: It, going back to what I said before with Henry VI, Part Three,
1: Richard II
0: also gives up the crown, mm-hmm. you know? he And he literally has, like, a ceremonial moment when he does it um, mm-hmm. that's sort of highlighted with, like, some heightened poetic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's just, again, much more easy for me to believe that a king is scared enough to give up his crown. Because, uh, you know, usually, like, you hear like the captain goes down with the ship, and sure. like, what... Well, most kings would rather die than give up their crown but like for a child that's that's scared of death yeah I mean it it would be much more feasible to have a child bequeath the crown to an adult than it would be for me to see one adult bequeath the crown to another adult mm-hmm. certainly I mean obviously that happens in every production that's ever been almost every production probably that's ever been done of Richard the Second but I do want to see it with a 14 year old kid at the helm
1: yeah yeah, more. I would. I would pay good money, actually.
0: One more, um, well, and I guess then the other the thing to discuss is how to do it. Like, what has to to happen?
1: Well, I mean, that's why i i specified i i, I specified a child of four because, like, my original thought was, oh, what if like your tired producer was a total jerk and made you like get an eight year old? But there's just that it's just it's just, just just I I can't I can't imagine that not being a travesty. Mm-hmm. 14 year olds like I've I've met some really capable Shakespearean teenagers sure yeah um Shakespeare, Shakespeare shakespearean Shakespeare teenagers Shakespeareans? Shakespeareans? Shakespeareans. I don't know Sha- I know I'll come up with a portmanteau later um, <laughs> and I'll tweet it loudly uh, but so like, I think I think you can get a 14 year old who could, if not contain the entire scope of that role, could mem- could, could do the technical work, could sure. memorize all of the lines.
0: You know, it's interesting. Uh, Lenny Banevez, the artistic director of Titan Theater Company mm-hmm. in Queens, was on this podcast uh, for our Othello episode. And we talked, like the tyrant producer in that one, said that Othello had to be 18 years old. Um, which is, um, and we talked about how we would do that. And it was actually, like, I don't know if you've actually, like, gone back and listened to the episodes before you were on, but
1: that's pretty... There were episodes before I was I on. I know. Crazy. What? But, um, basically,
0: the, the, the thing that Lenny said that stuck out to me in the interest of making it work was to make sure we know how Othello got to where he was in the first place as an mm-hmm. 18-year-old. And so to make sure that we're heaping on the praises, and talking about his accomplishments, and really, um, using subtext to, to explain, like, how impressed everybody is with him when talking about his accomplishments. A a king is born into power, right? So, I mean, obviously we would have to maybe have a prologue where we see, like, a king dying, um, at an early age, and Richard II being forced to take the crown at the age of 14, Mm -hmm. um. Or maybe we, we really heap on the, the dumb, childish things mm-hmm. that Richard II has done when they talk about them in the first couple acts of the play. Sure. And really, you know, use some, s- s- uh, like, a, a sort of snide tone when talking about it as though everybody's just sort of beleaguered about a 14-year-old ruining mm-hmm. uh, their country. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean that's sort of how you would have to go about it is to a explain um, use use the childishness and the immaturity to explain why he is the way he is and also make sure um, the audience knows that he is a kid that's messing up and doesn't really know what he's doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the the beauty of Richard II I, I just love that play, is that this is a king who is king by divine right. He's never had to mm-hmm. fight for his power and he's never known a world where he didn't have it. So for him, like, it really is like this I don't know, the, the, this um... What I love about Richard II, and I truly love this play is that, you know, It's about this king who is a king by divine right, who has never had to fight for his uh, for for his reign, who has never been without it, who does not know what it is to not be king. And he learns it under the most traumatic of circumstances. And I'm just like I'm thinking of you know, some of those some of these lines. uh, Must the king kneel, the king will do it. And 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 that, that scene Where um, he's on the battlefield and he waffles between everything's fine, everything's fine, we're going to be fine, oh my god, life is over, life is over, Mm. we're all going to die, nope, it's fine, I'm king, we've got it, oh my god, I'm all falling to pieces. Just I remember how hyper-dramatically bipolar being a teenager was. It just, oh, my heart just breaks for, for Kid Richard.
0: So I think what we've learned is that a lot of it, like the element of putting a kid into the role... Uh, uh, helps the play in certain ways. It does. Um, but in order to help the concept, there are certain things that we have to do uh, around Richard, such as making sure to to have sort of like snide tones when people are talking about him, or, you know, showing why exactly he had to become king at a young age. And, you know, that actually adds a depth to the character. Like, if a kid never got a full childhood because he had to be king when he was a teenager.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Cool. So I guess we move on now to our listener question.
1: Yeah, we've got a few of them. What do you got, Kyle? Oh,
0: we do have a few of them. I, I, great. We have some Twitter responses. That's amazing.
1: Thank you, Twitter.
0: Um, so Shakira Adams asks, what show does the world most need to see right now?
1: I, uh, I I have thought a lot about this question a lot because um, mm-hmm. it came in right before we started recording. Uh, and I've got to say, and I intend this in the most political way possible, I think that the play that we need right now is King Lear because it's a play about the importance of speaking truth to power. Um, mm. It's a play about the dangers of unqualified tyranny. And it's a play about, a, a, a in many ways, a bunch of, Characters looking out for themselves to the exclusion of all others, and all of those characters end up destroying themselves and each other. Those are all lessons that we need to hear right now.
0: Well, and especially, I think, the element of those people destroying themselves and each other. Because, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, to go on a little more of a somber note, America is very, very tense right now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think it's important for the world to see the consequences of, I don't want to say overreacting, but reacting strongly to the um, absurdities of a dangerous leader. And to 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 very much put on the surface what we're talking about, um, a lot of people are scared of Donald Trump's presidency uh, beginning in January. Yeah. Um, and look, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but I think it's important that the world sees... Um, what happens when people take action that is too far to a certain level and how that ends up for everybody, right? I mean, there's one thing to to see the actions of a leader um, and, and try to make sense of them and try to, to work around them and try to make things okay in spite of them. There's also an element that I think the world needs to see of don't... Carry it too far. Do your best to to work with what you have and try not to to make sh- it so that there is a a really a high price paid.
1: I I see what you're saying. I would um, I would add to that that um I agree with all those things. But in addition, we shouldn't be afraid to make active choices to protect and promote. The values that are uh, beneficial to all of us as citizens, we should make active and strong choices to protect ourselves and each other. Yes, um, like Cordelia. Like Cordelia, um, but what we should we should find a way to do that without demonizing the other side. Yes, we need to find a way to both listen and empathize. And act,
0: and the, again, Cordelia does empathize. You know, she is not like, she doesn't have that hate mm-hmm. in her heart that that I, you know, that that some characters might. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is inspiring to see her make sure her values are heard. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's what show I think the world most needs to see right now. What other questions do you have from listeners?
1: On a completely different note, Gabriel Kenny would like to know, where do you think Hamlet and Ophelia went on their first date?
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, we have to decide what era the production is set in.
1: Okay, so let's Uh, game this out. Um, uh, let's, like, let's, let's say in, like, in in a straight-up Elizabethan, like, it's the world premiere, it's the world premiere of Hamlet, um... In Elizabethan England and the actors playing Hamlet and Ophelia have decided to do their Stanislavski work because they're time travelers Mm -hmm. and uh, they decided that their first date was I'm going to say a court ball at Elsinore at which they both happened to sneak out for some air because those balls are crowded and nobody bathes and nobody washes their clothes and the food's kind of rotten and they went for a long walk on the battlements that ended in smooching possibly (laughs) groping. A discussion of books. There was much discussion of books because Hamlet and Ophelia are two of Hamlet's most intelligent lovers. What do you think? Um,
0: you know, I do like the idea of books. I mean, I guess in this time, like, I don't know what people did for dates, but I imagine, like, going to an actual library and reading things was probably very much on the table. It's think... still
1: on the table. Guys, if anyone wants to take me to a library to read, that is, like, my ideal first date.
0: There you go. You've heard, you heard it gentlemen here. Gentlemen, have just found the number one way into Abby Wilde's heart.
1: Start your engines. I'm just saying.
0: Um, yes, of course, that's very much a possibility today, and I didn't mean to downplay that. It's um, <laughs> fine. Um, it also... <sighs> That, I mean, and if the if the question was um, Ferdinand and Miranda, I would <laughs> definitely, definitely say library. For him and Ophelia, um, I find them to be one of the more intellectual couples, but there is also, um, there, there seems to be something very hard and fast about them, right? Which means I feel like there was, there could have almost been like a physical excitement um, in their first date. So I... I want to go the a, a different direction and say something like tree climbing.
1: They went tree climbing. That's so sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. And what I love about the it also, like, it evokes, I think both of our answers evoke a simpler time, you know, before King Hamlet died. Right, right. <laughs> um, back when Prince Hamlet could afford to be full of hope and optimism and love. Um and I also love that we both we both avoided the uh, historical reality that they were probably both accompanied by chaperones at probably. all times. Yep.
0: And uh, you know, I mean there's good possibility that it was arranged. So <laughs> Yeah. Well I actually don't know like if that's anywhere in the context of Hamlet, but we I mean we know something about Arrangements. Let's right, put that, in that out time. there.
1: You know, yeah. Gertrude says that she would have hoped to she hoped to deck Ophelia's marriage bed when she's scattering flowers on the grave because Gertrude is dark that way. Mm. Um, so there's 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 textual evidence that supports an interpretation in which their marriage was arranged, but also they fell in love.
0: Yeah, and I think we're largely judging these based on their personality and their relationship rather than any historical context, which is the fun of it. I mean, let's anyway. be fair. Yep. Tree climbing. Love Tree climbing. It.
1: Oh no, I just thought of something terrible. What? Their first date was a swim in the river. Oh no! no!
0: Next question. Ugh. Wiped from my brain. Do, you have, do we have anything else from Twitter?
1: That's all I've got. What have you got?
0: Okay, well, I... Going sort of back to a political note. Mm-hmm. System of a Downing on Instagram, uh, which is my younger brother. I figured. Asks best monologue for the election. You know, I'm going to, um... So, as much as I try to remain calm and neutral and objective about the the results of the election, there is one um, monologue that hits me in a certain place right now. Um, and... Especially in the... the hearts of the the people that are protesting the results. Um, it's interesting to think about uh, Richmond's speech in Richard III, um where he starts out by saying, uh, why then tis time to arm and give direction? More than I have said, loving countrymen, the leisure and enforcement of the time forbids to dwell upon. Yet remember this, God and our good cause fight upon our side. The prayers of holy saints and wronged souls like high-reared bulwarks stand before our faces. Richard accept those whom we fight against had rather have us win than him they follow for what is he they follow. Truly gentlemen, a bloody tyrant and a homicide. Now, I am not a personal believer that we are in the the danger of a, a tyranny. Um, I don't believe our democracy works that way, but I also really am struck by the line, God and our co- good cause fight upon our side. And there are a lot of people right now that um, are scared for their rights and, and for their safety. And I think it speaks... To a lot of people especially the lines uh, if you do sweat to put a tyrant down you sleep in peace um, I think there's a message in there that, that resonates with a lot of the people who are scared right now
1: mm-hmm. I gotta agree with that choice you know people are scared right now and, and from what I've read and what I've experienced and um, what some of my friends have experienced thus far already I think I do not think that fear is an unreasonable response. I think the danger of a word like tyrant is that it's a dehumanizing noun. Mm, However, it is a, a noun that we're using towards somebody who has by word and by deed dehumanized others. Um, I do not think that the word is inappropriate. I, I think it's, I think that my feelings are too raw for me to be objective about how useful that word is. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that speech, which comes from a place of strength, of hope, yes. of an active and aggressive determination to fight for good and mm-hmm. abolish evil—how we define it and where we find it—is something that we can all. Um, we can all take a lot away from.
0: Yes. And I think that's important that you said that, that this is not like that rather than think about the literal violence of fighting and slaying a tyrant. Um, the, the message we should take away from how this speech compares with the election is the, the non-physical fighting, right? The, the sweating to put a tyrant down by um, diminishing the hate that comes from him and the ideals that surround uh, a lot, of, a large base of his followers—not all of his followers, but a large base of them. Um, so, and and the idea of uh, wronged souls, uh, the the prayers of wronged souls standing before our faces. Yes, so I think we should think of this metaphorically as fighting for good and on behalf of wronged souls, and. Standing up to a tyrant and making sure that the values of that tyrant uh, become silenced. The, mm-hmm. the At least the hateful values. Well, thank you, uh, all of us. I know this has been a particularly long show. But thank you to everybody who has stuck through with us to the end. And um, we're really grateful that you have come through and, and listened to the whole show. And. And we hope that we have inspired you in some way or taught you something. And we are just really grateful to have you as a listener.
1: Mm-hmm. We missed you guys. Keep making art and keep asking questions.
0: Yes, especially the questions thing. Yes, please. Um, if you have to choose between art and a listener
1: question one day,
0: just give us a listener question and then like do your art later. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. I'm absolutely kidding. On that note, um, Abby...
1: I'm Abby Wilde. I'm an actor and writer based out of Los Angeles and New York. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wilde. You can find me online at abbywild.com where you will find photos, videos, my credit. My credit's how to contact me. You'll find that I'm currently seeking representation. So if you're a theatrical agent listening, give me a ring. I'd love to talk to you.
0: Uh, And as for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm an actor and a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can find me on Facebook at NYShakesGuy, or Twitter and Instagram at at You can check out my YouTube channel by searching NYShakesGuy, parentheses, Kyle Downing, uh, or email me with any questions or inquiries at nyShakesky at gmail.com. Be sure to keep an ear out for future episodes of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare, and you can find all of this in one place at www.kyledowning.com/nyshakesguide.html. For Abby Wild, I'm Kyle Downing. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.